As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, the bully with the feminine voice, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my loyal co-host, Mike Walker, the man whose greatest fault is his poor taste in friends. These, by the way, are actual comments from the internet. How you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. I am very glad to hear that. So, Mark, reviewing a game this week, I just wanted a quick little, what we call a mini uh, theme. This is where you mess with our format again. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Do you think that... Board game designers are manipulating their design process in order to satisfy a solo part of their game constantly. Like, I'm wondering if games are suffering because eventually, either in a Kickstarter project or down the line, they're going to be forced to interject a solo mode. So are, are they changing their design process in order to anticipate this solo mode constantly? I am an unreconstructed capitalist, and so I don't necessarily see that as a perverse or negative thing. I wouldn't use the term manipulate. If you're asking me if board game designers are catering to market demands, I would say yes. Well, I don't want to say cater. catering is, is sort of caving in and going on afterwards. I'm wondering if it's sort of a subliminal thing in the back of their head that, that is, is changing the way they're designing a game because it's constantly on their mind. Possibly. That's one of the reasons why I appreciate iconoclasts, even when they produce things that I don't necessarily like. But is this is this a grave concern for you, Walker? Do you fear no, for the future of well, our I hobby? Did. I think I brought it up before, and I and I just think that it is something I'm I'm concerned. About. I just wonder if there's games that are are losing it, not losing it, but are are not as good as they could be because of this particular element. Well, it's impossible. I think suffering. That, I think that's one of those suffering. counterfactuals that would be difficult to establish. We can bemoan market trends, oh, but I, I don't know if we could imagine what a game would be like if it hadn't been subject to a certain kind of influence. But on that topic, we should talk about games this week. Yes. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Post-Human Saga. 
So I got to play Quartermaster General World War II. This is the new title of the second edition of Quartermaster General. This is all very confusing. So mostly the changes are, there have been some changes to the map, there have been some changes to the cards, but mostly what I have to report is that very little has changed. There were some new status cards that have been tweaked, and it certainly made Italy in Quartermaster General feel a little bit more aggressive in the short term. So one of the great things about Quartermaster General is you have to be concerned about blowing through all your resources in the early phases of the war. And as the Axis, if you're going to win, you're probably going to win in the first half of the game anyway. And that's exactly what happened. And this was, it was great to get to the table. Again, you know, full complement of six players playing with Prelude, which I still think is pound for pound one of the best expansions released over the past few years. Really helps the game start off with a, an, on an up-tempo note and adds tremendous historical flavor. But Quartermaster General World War II remains largely unchanged from the original version that was published by Griglin Games back in the day, and this new edition by Ares Games is largely the same. Color matching of the cards was a little bit off, but nothing too serious. General expansion stuff. The pieces don't match in color with the Air Marshal expansion, but again, not a huge deal. Doesn't need to be randomized. And it was one of those things where, once again, someone at the table, and this is one of the faults of the Quartermaster General series, if if people don't enjoy it, is someone is going to get the short end of the stick. Someone's going to get ganged up on, probably. And because that's the way you want to win. And here in this game, what happened was Italy and Germany Germany did something that I've never seen before in Quartermaster General World War II. They occupied Moscow as of turn seven, and they just sat there and they just knocked Russia out of the game effectively, which is bizarre because Russia has tons of status cards and reaction cards and event cards that serve to get them back in the game. But we were able to make the final push. We knocked them out of Moscow, but then they came back and then we made another push and we knocked them out. We all enjoyed it, even the player who who got knocked out. But, you know, it's hard, especially as a game explainer, the one who brings the game. I've talked about this before, but just to emphasize, it's hard to bring a game of Quartermaster General of any variety to the table and you warn them up front, someone's going to get the shaft. This is just how it works. Someone's going to run out of gas. Someone's going to get their capital occupied. Like, that's just the way the game works. And it's better because it's a team game, so you can rely on help from your allies, and you can still still be involved, but it's it, it can still leave a sour taste in your mouth. Generally speaking, I'm the one who feels worse about it than the one who gets knocked out, I think, but that's just because I'm a kind, sympathetic soul. That's what everyone says. That's what I tell who, everyone. Who says that? Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to say. It, it's, what I, it's what I shout in their faces. I, I, I scream see. at them that I'm a kind, sympathetic soul. I, yeah. And the volume is directly proportional to the truth of the statement, right? Exactly. Anyway, I had a great time. I've been meaning to try the new edition, and I can report, as I said, very little has changed. Wonderful, wonderful game, Quartermaster General World War II, especially with the Prelude expansion. Moving on, I've got more good news in the realm of board games. I finally found a Mars game that I really like. Really? Yes. Well, after Ares Project. Ares Project, I I enjoy warts and all. It's a weird game, but I, I still enjoy it. Haven't liked Terraforming Mars. Haven't liked On Mars. Didn't really like Mission Red Planet. Now there's Mars Open Tabletop Golf, which is a dexterity game where you flick bent pieces of cardboard. And is it stupid? Yes. Is it a silly little children's toy? More or less, yes. But I will say this. One of the things that I look for in a dexterity game is, are the victory conditions reasonable and can it lead to come from behind victories? Because a lot of dexterity games we enjoy aren't really solid on the victory conditions end. And usually are not solid on the victory condition ends. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking in particular two of my favorite go-to dexterity games. I'm thinking specifically of Junk Art and Rhino Hero Super Battle, both of which are not particularly good on the whole. Men at Work, same thing. Men at Work is even worse, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, look, it's golf. 
it's a number of strokes. If you if you flick the thing off the table, you you lose a stroke. There you go. It's reasonably straightforward. It's intuitive, and and it leads to some interesting elements. And I have to say, one of the reasons why I appreciate Mars Open Tabletop Golf is because it is table agnostic. You need a large surface, preferably a table, but it doesn't even need to be a table. And you and I both, Walker, have tables with leaves on them. So there are kind of slats and small gaps on the table. So a lot of traditional flicking games, such as, for example, Disc Duelers, which is one of my favorite flicking games, you, it doesn't, it's not really well suited to the table because the gaps will cause the discs to do strange things. But if you're just flicking pieces of cardboard and trying to get into the box lid, well, then you're good to go. So it's some it's good for some dumb fun. I enjoyed it. I played a nine-hole course. There are additional nine-hole courses available. It comes with little bits of terrain that you put all over the place. The other thing that I often look for in a dexterity game, which Mars Open Tabletop Golf has, is there are trick shots available that do not require hours and hours of practice to be able to attempt. I'm not saying that you become an expert immediately. That wouldn't be a very good game either. But there are bank shots that you can perform, and you can immediately see results even over the course of your first play. I haven't felt this way about a dexterity game since high school, where you could make very impressive arcing shots given the physicality of the pieces. And Mars Open has this lovely little a bit in the instruction book where it says, here are various kinds of shots and what they're going to do. And it was nice. So I had, I had some... It was, it was good. It's not going to set the world on fire, but I enjoyed it. Actually, it won't set the world on fire because there's not enough of an oxygen to... Oh, have. shut up. Imperial Settlers, Empires of the North. I finally got to play a multiplayer game of this, and I say that very quickly and loosely because it really didn't feel like a multiplayer game. It felt exactly like my solo plays because there's very little interaction in this game, uh, unlike, you know, 51st State, where you really want to stop people from working their engine. In this game, you you spend these conquer tokens and you can tap out people's cards. You don't actually destroy them. You just tap them so they can't use that particular action. But the conquer tokens are very hard to acquire. And there's so many other useful things you can do with them that it's very tapping one card and one of your opponents doesn't seem very... And the other thing that we had going against is that there's two decks that they sort of say you should use these as your introductory decks. And one is very heavy on on one element of the game, whereas the other one is is heavy on a different element. So it sort of kept us away. Like the, there's a part of the game where you use the conquer tokens, you go out and you conquer these other islands either far or away. And, and my opponent's deck, you know, fed into that, you know, got extra ships, could do this multiple times. And mine was just copying cards that I had in my own tableau. So it was very much, I can't see it very being very much different, except when you play with a lot of players, because it, the number of islands that they put out is the same no matter how many players you have. And there's only four. So there's two close ones, two that are far away, and I can see them disappearing very fast in a multiple player game. So I'm looking forward to playing it with, you know, more than just two players. And that was uh, my Imperial Settlers, Empires of the North. I'm really, I'm, I definitely want to play it more. I enjoyed, I, I can see where they're going with this, but I can see it being, it's so fiddly. I can see with newer players, it wouldn't work so well. Just how, because my deck was copying cards. You know, you copy a feature card or you copy this card. And then there's other ways that it plays off of, you're putting out your player tokens on this interesting rondelle that changes every game. And I only say rondelle because you can do another action by paying a food and you can just move your action pawn left or right and then exhaust it. But when you do those actions, it lets you do like a bonus action because some of the cards that you have in your hand will say, you know, play this action when you do a populate action so then so then it sort of triggers so you get to do two actions and then do and then some of your action cards in front of you that say do a populate action and then you can do it then as well it just seems there's all these little fiddly bits where i think it'll 
you know, lock down newer players to the game, unfortunately. And please refresh my memory. It's been a while since I played the original Imperial Settlers. Is there still drafting? Is there still a multiplayer draft of available cards? No, no. You're only drawing from, I your, see. You're only drawing from your own deck. I thought so, yes. But it does have this cool, very interesting and cool mechanism where, unlike the other games, all of your resources aren't lost at the end of the turn. Right. And not only that, you get meeples like you do in for the first aid and these other things, and they they never exhaust you. You just put them on like a separate card. So you're like building your levels, your little civilization, like your population up, and then you get them all back. And I thought that was interesting. Well, I'm still interested in trying it. We will try it. I got a couple plays in of Blitzkrieg. Now, if you enter in Blitzkrieg on BoardGameGeek to try to find the game in the database, you might have some problems. So let me be very clear. So how, I know. I looked it up, too. I said, is that the game from 1972? No, it's not. Because there's only about 13 Blitzkrieg games. So Yes. It's not quite as bad as Samurai, where there's any number of games with just Samurai in the title. But Blitzkrieg, sometimes it's Blitzkrieg of this, Blitz, Blitzkrieg of that, or something. I'm something just wondering, like, when these people are making these games and they have a title, do they not just sort of do a little bit of recon? I, the people that like made the recon game, would be another title. They, that would probably they, did, be they made a game called The Game. Did they not maybe yes. like just sort of Google that and say, <laughs> "Hey, how hard is this going to be for people to find?" Well, in, the, in in defense of the people who made the game, there is no other game that I know of called The Game. So, right, well, and there's a reason for that. Yes, part. there's a good reason. Anyway, so this, in order to find this, this is Blitzkrieg with the exclamation point, uh-huh. as designed by Paolo Mori. Paolo Mori is one of the favorites of this podcast. We love his work. This was sent to us as a review copy by PSC Games. This is a redevelopment of a game called Geralampo, World War II in 20 Minutes, and the tagline World War II in 20 Minutes has been repeated. And I can assert that for this is one of those rare times where the box is not lying to you. This is indeed a 20-minute two-player game. Does it feel a whole lot like World War II? Not really. What it feels like is Dogs of War. But we love Dogs of War, so that's great. You have all these different tracks, which are uh, fronts, where you're engaged in a tug of war. What's really, really cool and what is kind of present in Dogs of War but has really been dialed up here, you can't really let a track go to waste. You can't just say, look, I'm not going to pay any attention to Eastern Europe because if your opponent wins a front by a complete blowout, they get a lot more points and it gets really, really awkward. And indeed, they might be able to get those points more easily than if you had just contested them, even though you know you're fighting a losing battle. In this way, it's actually vaguely reminiscent of another excellent two-player, 20-minute-ish game about World War II, Air, Land, and Sea, where it's all about knowing where to devote your resources and knowing when to pull back. And it's less blunt in Blitzkrieg, though, because you have to kind of focus on all fronts. You're never really retreating entirely and giving up the fight for Lost. It's, instead of workers to be placed, you're placing these little chits, and they're drawn blindly from a bag, and so sometimes you might not get access to your, your, your better forces. There's also this notion of researching to get better chits, which have some special abilities, or just better values, and sometimes it can be disappointing to go heavy into the research track, as it were, and not be able to pull those later on, and sometimes feels like it goes to waste. That having been said, it is a really, really good two-player implementation of a system that I already really enjoyed. Yeah, I didn't get to play, but I was watching you play it, and the, the setup was very quick, and the back and forth, there was like no, you know what I mean, it looked very quickly. 
looked very quickly. It looked, it looked very, very quickly. It looked very quickly, Mark. It, it looked very quickly. Wow, quickly is great. And I and it, I can I can assert it is super tense because the time pressure on you, the tempo pressures on you are constant and omnipresent. There's the front that you're really trying to push so you can establish dominance. There's the front you're trying to finish off so you can get the, the big windfall. There's the front you're losing and you don't know whether you want to devote any resources. And then there's the one where you're engaged in a seesaw battle and the front is about to proceed to the next stage because all the worker placement elements are uh, proceeding in stages. You have to fill up a row and then once that row is full, it can be filled in any order. You then proceed to the next row with escalating stakes involved. It's really, really excellent and I look forward to showing it to you and I look forward to playing it again. This has been a great couple of years for two-player games, which as we always say is a crowded field but we don't get enough time uh, time to play. But as far as quick rules explanation, very, very satisfying and very tense, excellent trade-off decisions. Blitzkrieg was a winner and I very much look forward to future playings. Really? You're just going to let the Godzilla part go? You're not going to talk about Godzilla? I didn't Godzilla. play? Okay, it's got an expansion that I didn't try. There's the Nippon expansion, which is an alternate history version where Germany occupied the United States after winning World War II, and now Japan is invading German-held the United States. With Godzilla. With Godzilla. Yes. Among other go. people, guest starring Godzilla. Nice. I didn't play that expansion version yet because it seems it, it has different trade-offs involved. Most of the fronts there only have a single row, so there's not this notion of escalating uh, escalating consequences in a given theater because you're proceeding to different rows. I don't know if that makes the game better or worse or just different, but it does seem more asymmetric and therefore weirder, and I wanted to start with just sort of the vanilla version because there's no asymmetry in the base game between the United States and Germany. No real asymmetry anyway. The asymmetry comes by who decides to research what. But... That was Blitzkrieg. Really solid game. Looking forward to more of it. On the topic of review copies, I also, for some solo gaming, sat down for the only game that matters, Seal Team Flicks. Had a marvelous time running my two seals throughout the map. I love the geography of the different maps, the different choke points, the different evolving levels of tactical puzzles, that a sentry takes cover at the wrong time and in the wrong place, and suddenly there's this fire lane that's an absolute charnel house. You have to deal with that, but meanwhile there are these patrols that keep spawning because I keep making too much noise, because I do not believe in subtlety when I'm playing Seal Team Flicks. Anyhow, recently it was pointed out to us, and we, we noticed online, a competitive mission was released for Seal Team Flicks. Seal Team Flicks being a uh, fundamentally cooperative game. I have not played it yet, Walker does not seem particularly enthusiastic. No. <laughs> that is the final word on Walker. Yeah, exactly. No, I just I just I just feel as though it's like sort of getting together and 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 just that I think that's the an essential part of the game. I think if, if you start making it competitive, it'll take the fun away. It might I might be completely wrong. I haven't tried it so I shouldn't really say. I'm interested in giving it a shot, no pun intended. It is a shame that there is not more content being released for Seal Team Flicks because initially there was supposed to be an expansion that involved things like new maps. And as I said, I love all the maps and new maps give a tremendous degree of variety. There was going to be, there were some uh, vague illusions on the part of the designers online. There was going to be something to address the wasted actions problem that sometimes exists, which is common amongst almost all cooperative games. Like, okay, well, we don't want to do this thing this turn, so there's nothing really for you to do with this uh, this leftover action, so we'll wait to next turn and, and do a massive thing. And we prefer it when games such as, for example, Hellboy uh, give you outlets for those extra actions, so you can just... Anyway, not to belabor the point, there was supposed to be expansion content, then there was the announcement that it was being scaled down, and then there was the announcement that it's been put on hold, which is a shame. So at least I, I'm very enthusiastic that the designers have been releasing content online, and I hope that they continue to do so. So I'm interested in checking that out. Anyway, that was Steel Team Flicks. 
remains an excellent way to spend some time flicking at some eco-terrorists. Finally, got to try a game called Imperial Spells in Steam. This is by Trey Chambers at Level 99 Games. Trey Chambers' uh, previous release with Level 99 was Argent the Consortium, which is a game that I thought had lots of amazing ideas and lots of amazing elements, and if it could be brought down into a somewhat coherent 90 to 120-minute experience, might be one of my favorite games of all time, but at three hours is a little much. Imperial Spells in Steam is, in many ways, that kind of spiraling out of control chaos of special powers in a tight, manageable experience. The box has about 20 minutes per player, and that sounds about right, honestly. The first game I played was two-player, and it was about 45 to 50 minutes. And it was the kind of game where you're doing very small, atomistic things... And then suddenly there's a tipping point. You start thinking, oh, okay, I've got a handle on this. This is this is how my engine's working. And then suddenly madness ensues. And then the game ends. Imperial Spells in Steam is nominally a root-building kind of sort of pick-up-and-deliver game. Pick-up-and-deliver games are not the kind of thing that I tend to enjoy too, too much. The closest thing to pick-up-and-deliver games that I thoroughly enjoy are splatter games. Because most splatter games, to me anyway, especially games like Indonesia and Food Chain Magnate, feel kind of sort of like pick-up-and-deliver games. Then there's Roads and Boats, which is unambiguously a pick-up-and-deliver deliver game, albeit with civilization-type trappings. So Imperial Spells in Steam, you're just spreading out these beautiful plastic rail cars along a map. The map is a little garish, unfortunately. It's one of the things in the visual design that doesn't quite work. But you're then trying to connect the cities and deliver goods, and all the while what you're doing is you're upgrading your action selection. Your action selection mechanism is you move a pawn and you activate everything below that pawn. And you start off with very simple things like, I will put a train car in a forest. I will put a train car in a volcano. I will put a train car over here. And then suddenly you're like, okay, I'm copying this ability. I'm stealing that from you. I'm moving this good over here. I put out 17 train cars and I get all my mana back. Okay, your turn. And... The turns, even when they start spiraling out of control, are really quick. The only part where things really grind to a halt is where you start picking up new special abilities. Because it wouldn't be a Trade Chambers game from Level 99 Games unless you pick up new special abilities. And the new special abilities are cool, but it's a little bit of a downer on the tempo because the rest of the time it's so quick for everyone to pick up the rulebook and look at things. This was pointed out actually by Dan Throw over at Space Biff, and he's absolutely right. It just it, it, it really neuters the tempo significantly. I do really like Level 99 games. I like Battlecon. I like a lot of their other games. I will say, though, that the theming in Imperial Spells and Steam is the first time where I've looked at a level 9 product and said, really, guys? Really? Because it started with Battlecon. That was their first product, and they had this huge stable of characters, and they're all in a kind of fighting game. Okay, fine. Then they had Pixel Tactics, and they used the same characters. Fine. Same kind of deal. People are messing with each other. Then, and this is not strictly in chronological order, then what you have is Argent the Consortium. And then it's like, okay, fine. This is about a magical university. And so everybody who practices magic might be a visiting scholar or come by. Okay, all right, all right. I'm still kind of with you. And now they've all decided to get into the rail industry. And now they've lost me. I am no longer on board, pun very much intended. I just, I can't, <laughs> there's something, maybe I'm alone. Maybe everyone else is like, oh yeah, of course this guy who's basically a Ryu from Street Fighter stand-in who practices elemental magic, of course he'd become a train conductor. Why wouldn't he? Oh, so when you say the same characters, you don't mean like same sort of vast character selection, the actual same characters? It's not a one-to-one -one correlation. There are some new people, and there are lots of characters in Battlecon that don't show up and vice versa, but the, the core characters, there's like a core stable of characters that's been in all of these games. And it's starting to feel a little bit like Barbie. You know, now Barbie's a doctor, and now Barbie's an engineer, and now Barbie's a space astronaut. And in the context of Barbie or things like that, that's fine. Whatever. It's wish fulfillment. She doesn't really have a character. She's a cipher. When there's a cipher, it's fine. But as characters, I start to be like, okay, first I was beating people up in arena combat. 
And then I decided to become a visiting lecturer at a magical university. And now I'm a ticket taker for a railroad. Well, you know, you got to you got to spread yourself, you know, got to make sure you're you have a diverse portfolio, Mark. You can't just, you know, sink all your interests in, into one basket. Okay, in fairness, the career trajectory that I personally have had is kind of almost as absurd and stupid. But then again, my career trajectory isn't filling out the roster of a game with like 50 different characters in it. So anyhow, that is my comment on the world building of Imperial Spells and Steam. I will say that it's great that the art assets uh, look similar across different games. No Comento, who is one of the core artists along with Fabio Fontes, I really, really like their, both of their styles of art. I do wish that No Comento would not draw all her female characters with massive chests though the outfits are pretty good but generally speaking it's it's a little uh, it's a little unfortunate but i do really like that you see these characters over again it's like oh i i that character means something to me i know a bit of their backstory but this for the this is the first time where i felt it was stretched a little bit past plausibility i don't know if they regard this as some sort of elaborate joke there are some funny bits uh but uh, anyway I'm just not the theming of Imperial spells in steam. It just feels like a little bit too much. Now I'm not really sure where they're going to go next. Who knows? Maybe volleyball or. Hey, we have a good track record with volleyball games over the past few weeks. So I'm looking forward to, again, I'm looking forward to trying this again, because this is very much a game where your first play isn't going to mean a whole lot because in, in Imperial spells in steam, the game spirals kind of out of control in a beautiful, delicious way. And so I'd like to see, another set of characters. I'd like to see another set of powers into the system. I'd like to see how this develops. I'd like to see how stable the system is because it seemed very stable despite how how wildly things were escalating. And I'd like to hear your feedback on it too. And it's really quick. The production is way over the top. Uh, you know, game trays have nothing on this. We're talking about trays on trays on trays in a massive box for a relatively simple and relatively quick game. But whatever, that's where the market's going. I can't fault them for that. That's very much the paradigm we live in. So there's a lot to like about Imperial Spells and Steam. I'm not entirely sure uh, how much there is to it, because after a first play, you, yeah, you can't really tell for sure. But I'm very optimistic. And so that was my early experiences with Imperial Spells and Steam. And that is the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, you know that social deduction games aren't my thing. I don't really know much of anything, Walker. I found something that... that has piqued my interest. This is a game called Secret Operation. It's been out before, but there's a company called uh, Fox Mind. This was out by Brain Panic first. Now it's out by Fox Mind. It's called Secret Operation, where you're building this robot and people are putting down uh, cards on the different parts of the robot, trying to build it. And some people are trying to build it. And of course, some are not. And once it reaches a certain threshold, then you flip up and you sort of try to guess who is trying to build the robot and who is not trying to build the robot. It just seems like who very... wouldn't try to build a robot? Exactly. The theme just seems a lot more than, than what I've seen out there, you know, that I've played for these social deduction games. So I'm just, I'm interested in this particular one and I hope it plays out nicely. I'm very pleased with the theme of this game, having never heard of it. But when you said it was a social deduction game and it was called Secret Operation, I immediately imagined, possibly because we just unboxed Clinic, a team of surgeons, everyone with their eyes closed, the buzz happens, and now you have to guess who accidentally... Accidentally hit the defibrillator button. <laughs> exactly. Womp. <laughs> Happy to be proven wrong, as always. Yeah, so Secret Operation from Fox Mind Games, Alberto Corazon Embari is the designer. Okay. That's that's not even close. That's fine. Walker, have you read some of the Spielkes online about Asmodee's new replacement policy? Oh, my goodness. I have. I'd read it all. Okay, so the long and the short of it is, 
that for North America at least, well, for Canada and the U.S., I don't know, I, all my ignorance, I don't know how it's working in Mexico. It used to be the case that if you had a problem with an Asmodee product, you would contact them and they would send you a replacement card. Uh, well, we should, and I should, we should specify that this is almost across the line yes. with almost any gaming product, miniatures included. This is nearly universal, yes. You contact the... And obviously, some publishers are more prompt. Some publishers uh, ask for pictures and some don't. I know that CGE asks you to input the serial number of the, the game in a web form. Fine. And sometimes they take forever, what have you. But the new policy going forward, and it's already in, pl- in force, we've heard already reports from people trying to get replacement parts that this is how it works. You don't contact them. Instead, what you do is you take your entire game back to the retail outlet from which you purchased it, and they are expected to either right away if they have the stock or order it and get give it to you later, give you an entirely new copy of the game, and then the retailer has to deal with Asmodee and the distribution chain on the back end. What are your thoughts on this change of policy, Walker? Uh... I don't have any thoughts myself. I, if it works, if it uh, personally, if it works, I'm happy with that. I, on the other hand, I really feel for the the game store. I I don't think as though they're going to be happy. This is what I meant to do. I meant to reach out to all our local people and see if a did did as most a contact every realtor in in North America and inform them of this change. Or, you know, are they prepared for all these things that are coming in and what do they think about it? And the fact that it's different for this one particular game, whereas everything else is done a different way. I just hope that uh, that it's good for the customers and good for the hobby. That's what I'm worried about. I cannot see a situation in which this is better for the consumers. I can't see a situation in which this is better for the retailers either. Previously, the retailers had nothing to do with it. Now, well, sometimes sometimes if you bought a defective copy, you could go back to the retailer. And in some places, indeed, uh, as I understand it in the UK, it is legally required that the retailer be able to make you whole. But in terms of actual practice, if you were missing a card or if a small thing were damaged or if a couple tokens are missing, involving putting the entirety of the onus on the part of the retailer and the consumer seems at best just a consequence of the fact that they've laid off their support staff and they don't want to deal with the labor costs. At worst, it seems like a cynical ploy to make sure that nobody takes advantage of this policy in the first place. And I've aired these grievances online and a number of people have agreed that they think that this is very much Asmodee trying to make sure that they don't have to deal with replacement parts anymore because the more onerous you make it, the less likely people are to take advantage of it. And this is absolutely offloading all the burden on the part of people like you and me, the consumers, and people at the brick-and-mortar retail chain. And this, I think, gives the lie. Asmodee, after all, was the market innovator in the minimum advertised purchase price, the MAPP policy. And they're like, oh, this is for the benefit of brick and mortar retail. This is to benefit the consumer to protect the perceived value of the product. And everyone at the time, ourselves included, said nonsense. This is to protect your bottom line. This is because you want to be able to charge more. Well, clearly, if Asmodee cared about brick and mortar retail as much as they say they do, they wouldn't make them their support staff. Agreed. I wonder if this feeds also into the sort of the the fast turnaround on games how people are just on to the next thing right away and they just won't care that they're missing parts or they'll just, you know, shelve it, you know, because it's not worth the bother and play the next big thing. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? Just move on to something else. And then there are serious practical considerations as well. What do you do if you buy a game while you're on vacation? That's one of the things that I do with souvenirs all the time. I get a game from a local game store and if you can't bring it back to the local game store, you're out of luck. Someone else raised the possibility, what if you've painted some of your miniatures? You have to return everything you have back to the retailer. If you've painted your miniatures, customized your components, what have you, you are entirely out of luck. You've wasted all that labor. So I, I think that there are serious practical yeah, or considerations. Or buy it at any convention, any yes. math trades. I'm, I 
tons of math trades where you get games and shrink already. So you don't even know if there's missing parts or not. There's hundreds of different scenarios that this, I've, I've traded games work. with missing parts and just not known. I haven't yeah. done the full, you know, if a game is supposed to come with 50 food pieces, I generally don't count that. I mean, some traders do. Maybe I should. Maybe I should now, going forward for any Asmodee product, I have to do a full inventory of everything, even when the quantities don't normally matter, because otherwise I'm going to leave the other person out in the lurch. Well, I, I like the, the one comment that I read that from now on, we'll just open the game up in front of the realtor and, you know, the, the retailer, the yeah. retailer and just count all the pieces and then just make sure everything's yeah, well, there. Make every one of your purchases, Walker, one of your unboxings, just just take the box and dump it out in the middle of the, of, of of the, the floor, store. right in front of the register and gotcha. start counting everything. That'll work. We should get a you know a little uh, movement together, and they can do this at the next convention that Asmos Day is at, and then everyone in line at the convention can do this in front of them. And I saw that. that suggestion online. That seems like an excellent act of protest. Mark, there are a lot of escape room games coming out, yet there are no IP ones. I read this one. It's called Scooby-Doo Escape from the Haunted Mansion. <laughs> this is coming out from the OP. And they're going to come out with a bunch of games with like a trademark thing, you know, like sort of like uh, uh, AEG did with their, you know, card, clear card system. This one's going to be called a Coded Chronicles game. So they're going to Ooh. be coming up with a bunch of these. But this one just, uh, I'm just interested in that. Like, a, because all the ones that have been out so far have just been generic exit or enter or escape or, you know, whatever. And this is, you know, Scooby Doo. I think if they do a great job, I think this will catch on and it looks fairly interesting to me. So it's an end of an era. Stefan Brook has stepped down from Alia. Alia, the venerable Eurogame retail imprint of Ravensburger, which started in 1999 with Raw and Chinatown, two seminal Eurogames. And Stefan Brook was a constant throughout Alia all this time. He was a developer, an editor. Apparently, he was a wonderful human being as well. Never met the man, never never really spoke to him. But he has put out some amazing stuff during his time at Alia. Now, there was a long period where Alia was nothing more than Stefan Feld's personal imprint. And they just churned out a whole bunch of stuff. I was not a huge fan of that era. But one cannot deny the influence that Stefan Brook has had. It's not clear whether he's going to be continuing in the games industry in another way. Uh, reports are still unclear. But I just wanted to... Spend some time to acknowledge that this is indeed, as I said, the end of an era. I'm just going to talk a bit about a game called Zen Garden. Just the fact, a cool way that they introdu introduce new rules. Like on the side, there's a sideboard of available actions, and it's just one of these, you know, pagodas that lies along the table. And you can add floors to this pagoda, which introduces more rules to the game. So like if you're doing your introductory game or with beginner players, you just put up the main board and you do your basic little garden and if you want to get more advanced you start adding levels and you can, then you can put the roof on and adds even more advanced stuff and i just thought it was a very interesting way to advance the game and get it more complicated you know based on what you want to do and that is zen garden by queen games i've been playing a lot of epic the card games digital implementation this was put up by white wizard who's also the publisher of the physical version and i was looking forward to this because epic the card game is one of my uh, magic substitutes of choice. I really enjoy a lot of fundamental conceits that it's not about timing and the economy. I really like how that works. But I haven't had a whole lot of success introducing it to players nearby. And I was really looking forward to this implementation because when you don't have opponents, having an AI version is okay. And for me, the difficulty always is, is the interface going to make me annoyed? And am I going to start playing randomly? These are just personal quirks. And so far, I have to say the interface is okay. 
With card games, it's often difficult if you're playing on a small screen. This is on iOS, this is on Android, this is also on Steam. It's somewhat sometimes difficult to see the full card, and if you've got a hand of cards, it can be tough. But in Epic, your hand never really gets that big, so it's not a huge deal. Anyway, I've been having a good time with it. It's not the most streamlined or resource-friendly implementation ever. It, it chugs along even on reasonably good PCs, and it certainly isn't doing any favors to my phone's battery life. But I have to say I've been finding it diverting, and since I like Epic for some quick, reasonably crazy, not entirely mindless fun, it, I, I was looking forward to it as a digital implementation, and so far it has not disappointed. And the deck building's good? I actually haven't tried the deck building version yet. Uh, I've, I've only, that I think would, would increase the difficulty of having to read through large quantities of cards. Like I say, I like Epic because it's quick and cheerful and occasionally kind of wild. And so my preferred version is actually just take 30 cards off the top and play with that, which I realize does not make me a very sophisticated Epic user. So thank you for drawing, drawing attention to that. I might try the deck building later. Uh, I, I would probably try the draft version first. But so far, just the uh, silly campaign version, which is really silly. The campaign is uh, pretty dumb. <laughs> which the, usually is in these in board game absolutely. Uh, digital implementations. When they throw a campaign system in, it's usually quite painful. Absolutely. But just the pull 30 random cards off the top is, so far has been very, very pleasant for just pick up and play action. And that's the epic digital implementation. All right. And lastly, just a couple quick Kickstarter news parts i talked a lot about marvel united last week and of course it's blown up over a million dollars and tons of expansions and tons of heroes so i got sort of you know interested as a, when, you know, with all these heroes man that's gonna be a lot of decks so i cracked open the rule book just to see because they talked about having you know here's all the figures you're going to get it doesn't it didn't really talk about and you know each one's going to come with a deck so i thought you know i'm sure each one had their own deck are you suggesting that a simon kickstarter was emphasizing the miniatures more than the gameplay ah, elements because madness, I, find that, I find that difficult I know, to believe madness i know but it turns out that the character decks are only 12 cards large so i'm just worried i'm hoping people will understand how light this game is going to be that's all i'm saying Marvel United, 12 card decks. <laughs> and the last bit is just Batman, yet another giant Batman cooperative game. Batman, the animated series. I have semi-fond memories of, of that show. I haven't looked at the rulebook yet. I'm hoping it'll be good. I hope someone locally gets it because I'm not. We are not getting any more giant plastic games. But it is also <laughs> blowing up. It's over a million dollars as well. Tons of plastic. Get your buckets emptied. I have an important question about the Batman animated series. Was there a beach episode? No, because it didn't come from Japan, Mark. <laughs> well, Young Justice doesn't come from Japan, does it? That's that's where I was first introduced to the beach episode paradigm by you. Was it? Okay. Yes. Oh, well, there you go. So that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game this week, which is Post-Human Saga. Post-Human Saga was designed by Gordon Kalea of Mighty Boards. This was sent to us as a review copy. The salient previous release was Post-Human Simpliciter, also by Gordon Kalea. We have not played that version, but we'll have a couple things to say about it. The We are big fans of Vengeance, also put up by Gordon Kalea and Mighty Boards, the revenge movie board game. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does right. in Post-Human Saga? So... What you're doing in Post-Human Saga is already laid out for you. At the beginning of each game, you are given a mission card which, which dictates which path you're going to have to follow. And you better get on it because it's going to take seven of your maybe 16 turns to complete. And this is only going to get 
And this is the only way you're going to get victory points, so you better get going. Well, okay, that I don't think is necessarily fair. So let's talk, let's talk about this in terms of the adventure game genre. I'd like to spend a little bit of time sort of contextualizing adventure games and talking about other games other than Posthuman Saga for a moment. Because the adventure game genre has, I think, been laboring under the shadow of Talisman for a very long time. The sort of wander around, kill some things, maybe get some gear, try to maybe get some more uh, more powerful, then do something near the end of the game. And really good designers have tried this genre, really bad designers have tried this genre, and I think it's fair to say for me, and I don't know for you, I dislike most of them. Correct. So I'm thinking about some of the more recent popular ones, even. So Seventh Continent didn't really do a whole heck of a lot for me, very much in the same sort of more narrative thread, less about combat and things like that, but still very much in the the sort of adventure game bucket. Uh, you might want to include things like Western Legends. It's a little more sandboxy, but still kind of sort of in the adventure thing. Star Wars Outer Rim is definitely in the classic adventure game mold, and we did not like that game. Discover Lands Unknown, also very much in the classic mold. We didn't like it. Crisis at Seamfall, Prophecy by the by the great Vlada Kavatal, all sort of in the adventure game genre, didn't really work for me. None of those really worked for me. There was the the Warcraft game did not too did not do a too bad job. I like how they implemented the actual video game into the board game. It was way too long, way too bloated, but the way they did combat and stuff was not too too bad. And make sure you know it is the World of Warcraft board game, not the World of Warcraft adventure game, which was almost a direct uh rune. They were like Rune Wars, yet another one. No, sorry, Runebound, which was almost exact, which was right. very similar to Runebound. Right. And this is all, these are all things bedeviling, I think, what are the competitive adventure games. They tend to be overlong, repetitive, a lot of downtime. It's really difficult to do narrative or theme compellingly. They're repetitive. There's not a whole lot of player interaction, and they tend to be repetitive. And there have been some exceptions. Right? There have been some adventure games that I really, really like. One of them being Mage Knight, of course, by Vlada Kavadal, which is almost comically themeless. They really went, you know, the, the rule book talks about how no one knows why you're doing what you're doing or wh- why you're trying to do what you're doing. You're here to kill things and take names, yeah, and that's just, it. Just go do it. Just go do it. Just just stop asking questions. Yeah. And then there are the ones that are uh, that are kind of... Uh, um, what I would call an evolution, but that's just betraying my, my preferences, sort of uh, a, a departure from the traditional adventure game genre and just focusing on sequential tactical combats. Here I'm talking specifically about Assault on Doomrock and Too Many Bones, two games I very much adore and are kind of a response to the traditional adventure game dynamic in that they abstract away a lot of the stuff that I don't want to be doing. Very much in the same way that Claustrophobia is kind of like an evolution of the dungeon crawl. These other adventure games are like, well, we're going to have an interesting combat system and let you play with it. And that's one of the reasons why Mage Knight works. The fundamental card play is is, is a media experience. And so what happened here to actually talk about our feature game here in Posthuman Saga, we have a lot of the traditional adventure game standards. You have the desire to level up and get more gear and get more stuff. You have to go around and kill things and you're wandering around on a map. But on top of this is layered on some additional elements very consciously. And the speci- I would like to talk about those things first, if you don't mind. That's yeah, perfectly fine. I'll, I will allow it this will, time. You will permit it this time? Yeah. Okay. So what happens here is you have what I will call, perhaps unfairly, but I think this is reasonably accurately, a tile-laying Euro game kind of grafted on top of the adventure game dynamics. And, and the reason why I wanted to bring this up, first of all, is because you said the way you're going to get points, in fact, you said the only way you're going to get points is through your mission card at the start of the game. And that's not true. Another way you're going to get points, and rather a lot of points, is through what are called recon objectives. 
I would object to the lot of points part. It tends to be at least a third or more of your final score. I suppose. That's a lot of points. Anyway, and <laughs> the, the, the difference is academic anyway, because the, these recon objectives are just about tiling, whereas fulfilling your, your, your mission, which ultimately boils down to combat, but in order to get there, you have the precondition of having laid out the appropriate tiles. And the way you get tiles relies on a lot of standard Eurogame elements, namely auctions. You need to be able to auction to get your place in the, uh, in the draft, you're then going to be drafting these tiles. And on top of this is the notion that people are competing over the same set of tiles. And you're looking at your mission objectives, and that those are private. Well, sorry, those are individual, not private. And then there are the recon objectives, which are shared. And in the games we played, we were looking at these things and saying, okay, well, I need this tile, but so do you, because looking at the pattern of tiles you've put out, this will also help you with your recon. Okay, I'd better win the next auction. What do I need to do in order to do that? Okay, well, I need to play this action. That part, you don't tend to find in other adventure games. Am I right? 100%. I have that in here as well. Tile laying, jockeying for turn order. I thought that was a, a really interesting part of the game, for sure. Like you said, the where turn order mattered, where you're taking tiles away from people, where you could not only take uh, the tiles they needed to uh, to complete their individual mission, but it also had the token on it for the shared, you know, create your pattern type things. And it led to some very pointed action trade-offs. The actions that you needed to do to prepare for the auction were very different from the mission. The actions you needed to do to prepare for the next combat, which were different from your ability to move around the map, which was different from, say, just getting more tiles in terms of quantity, etc., etc. And those points, those points of contact in terms of player competition, giving those terms of trade-offs in terms of building the map, and just trying to build out the proper combination of tiles in order to get the jobs that I needed to get done done, those were my favorite parts of Posthuman Saga. And honestly, vastly better than most experiences that I've had in other adventure games. 100%. And it was a deliberate attempt on the part of the designer, I think, to differentiate it from a lot of the Ulcerans, because a lot of the same conventions are still here, but the tile system really sets it apart. And that, I think, is the best aspect of the game, and when you are focusing on that aspect, I thought that the game was very interesting. Yeah, the second best I would put on would be the they have this turn order track, which is 16 turns, and and you sort of feed in your own token. So as you go along, you're going to be either like drawing uh, events or you're going to be uh, bidding on turn order. But the fact that you don't know what's going to happen, it has this, uh, you know, around turn seven, it has what I love in games is what other adventure games don't do is have the, this graduated system where you hit a certain point, then the monsters are going to get harder. You're going to start drawing from different decks. Different stuff is going to happen, which what is what I love. It's what they call is the mutant encroaching, right? So the mutants get more powerful. The mutations that you take on are are more distinct and, and more visible. And I thought that that was a a, a a great part of the game. Yeah, it would either happen automatically at turn seven, or if you've accomplished the first half of your mission, it will trigger for you before. But that depends on what you're focusing on, right? Yeah, it has this huge storybook. So if you flip over the token, it's either nothing happens or it's an individual story for one of the players. So you like... You draw a story number out of the book, and you you look it up on the page, and you you go through this little scenario. So let's talk about that. What did you think of the the story, the theme, the storytelling? Well, I just have a little thing here. I keep I don't want to keep you know saying oh it would have been better if they did it this way, but I just think it just seemed all over the place. And I thought so they had a hundred different little stories in the first book. I think it would have been they would have been better off if they did uh, little three part stories, and you and you drew and. 
you just sort of went through those three because everyone has the same number of tokens, right? So, you know, it would take you through a little story as you went along the turn track. I think that would have been much better than just drawing this random number with nothing actually happening, like a little story just for your character. That would have been complicated somewhat by the fact that with different player counts, you have different numbers of stories to trigger, but I agree with you entirely. Look, the paragraph storytelling systems that we've seen in various forms ever since the days of the original Tales of the Arabian Nights. Yeah, a lot of cart stuff. Yeah, it doesn't really do anything for me because it doesn't build narrative. It builds these random little moments. And sure, there's a certain amount of charm to that, but a lot of it depends on what kind of picture you're trying to paint. And I I, I would much rather have, as you say, some sort of evolving connective tissue in the stories that are going on. Because the theme of the game is that there's been kind it, it it's more or less post-apocalyptic. There have been a series of genetic experiments that have gone out, gotten out of control. And this is a relatively common staple of a lot of science fiction storytelling uh, ever since the days of Gamma World, way back in the early days of uh, TSR role-playing and a lot of other similar uh, similar storytelling conceits. That, you know, there are mutants ro- roaming all around the place. And honestly, the, the intro, the sort of story intro at the start of the book, was, I think, vastly more interesting than what happened overall in the course of the game. Because what's going on in terms of the start of the storybook and the back of the box and various other flavor texts about describing the game deals with things like politics and insularity and transhumanism and human evolution and things like that. And all of that stuff, there's a lot of fertile ground there to play around with those kinds of ideas. Even the title, post-human, the notion that maybe with these sets of mutations that evolution has been hijacked in some way, that these are a different group of people. All of that over the course of the game fades in the background. It's not there. All that you have are relatively standard, you know, semi-cannibalistic mutants, crazed slavers and murderers and things like that. I mean, it's it's fine, I guess, but it, it doesn't really live up to the pinnacle of the theme. And as you say, they're just these scattered little moments that don't amount to anything. And so in terms of any time we had to go to the storybook, the first few times I'm like, oh, let's see what this is going to do. But round about the fourth or fifth time you do it, it's like, okay, this is just going to be a call yeah. for a random stat check and something's going to happen. Uh, yeah, it would have been much better if it, like, uh, well, I don't want to get it. If it fed into your, like, skill deck or let you draw or did something uniquely to your skill set or your character would have been more interesting. Well, just more sense of agency or more sense of that this was a story that you were personally involved with rather than just a series of set That's pieces right. that didn't have any connective tissue. And I just want to talk about, like, the story that you said. Because there was a game before this which was post-human. It was you trying to find this place called... Uh, the Fortress. The Fortress. You were trying to find the Fortress. You, now you've found the Fortress. you become part of this community and now you must help protect it. You have to go out there and, you know, defeat these mutants. And I thought, like you said, I thought the story was great and it sort of gave you some sort of investment into this adventure that you're going on i don't know to me it felt like the second act of a multi-act story because we talked about our personal quests and there again was the possibility of slightly more narrative but the personal quests don't really resolve it with the expansion included and i think that uh the, the first expansion is called resistance and i absolutely think for what it's worth that resistance doubles down on some of the better gameplay elements of post-human saga because it it makes the tile placement and tile selection yet more important. There's another level of trying to get certain kinds of tiles. And that part I absolutely adored. But this was a this element of the storytelling was especially glaring in the resistance personal missions because all of them are scouting out something terrible. That's that's the end, that's the denouement of every personal mission. You scout out something awful. 
You don't address it. You're not conquered by it. You don't conquer it. You don't call in the cavalry and it gets, gets, gets resolved. Not saying that these would necessarily be better stories, but they're just all similar and they're all relatively bland and don't make you feel like anything is really happening. So I feel like this is all set up for the next game in the series or the next expansion or the next module or whatever, which might be okay if I were committed to a multi-game arc. But as, as much as possible, this is true even of a game like The King's Dilemma radically different game. But every session of The King's Dilemma, you have little things that happen that you're involved with and that you have skin in the game and you care about while at the same time knowing that there's an overarching story. Here, it's kind of the inversion. The individual session didn't give me anything to latch on to, and I just got the notion that everything that was happening was just in the service of some overarching story to which I didn't really have any connection with anyway. So I was I was very disappointed with how this sort of narrative evolved. Let's talk about the art. Love the artwork on all the characters. Love the artwork on all the enemies. I think the, even though we love the, I love the, the tile lane part. I wish the tiles were, were in a way that they linked together a little bit better. There's just all sort of random and it didn't really create a map on your board. It was just sort of like mountains and f- like the whole tile was all forest. It didn't sort of like, you know, spread out and get ready to transition into something else like other tile lane games do where, you know, there's a, a forest in the center and it sort of transitions out to, you know, could be anything that, you know, you know, butts up against it. I thought they could have done a better job with that. But but overall, I thought the art was very well done. Well, a virtue of the tiles is you could look across the table and see exactly what kind of ch- uh, piece of train it was. So I don't know if they would have been able to pre- preserve that if they tried to have bleed around the edges that could lead into other tiles. I thought, I love the action cards at the beginning of your turn. Uh, like you said, you had like four different actions to choose from. And I love games like that, that you have, you put it out in front of you. And the fact that everything that the action does is listed on the card. It just doesn't have the name on the card. You know, you can look through it, you know exactly what they do. That kind of thing, I really enjoy. When I initially read the rules, I was concerned about that. I thought that there, given that there were only four different kinds of actions, it might lead to some staleness or some obvious plays. But as I said, given that you're in competition over this scarce set of tiles and the time pressure to complete your mission is really, really, really prevalent, there is indeed a strong tension between do- doing a lot of these things for the first half to two-thirds of the game. Because after the first half to two-thirds of the game, in many sessions, not all, You've got the tiles you need. Your map is set out. And now you're thinking, okay, where am I going to get these marginal points? And then most of the time, you're either doing the thing that progresses your mission. It's called the trek action. Or you're just resting so you then get the resources back so you can go trek some more. And this was the pattern that evolved at the end stage. And all of these tensions and all the beautiful parts of the tiling and the competition for tiles kind of receded into the background. And it became this grind of, okay, there are seven turns left. I have four more mission things to do. All right, we got to get these treks out because that's where my points are going to come from. And then, so I feel like the game really uh, is lopsided in terms of its qualities. All the good part is front-loaded to the beginning, and then the end parts are a little grindy and unfortunate. Like most adventure games. Like most adventure games. And honestly... on top of this, I emphasized, I don't know if you noticed, I emphasized how repetitive a number of adventure games can be. And I certainly felt like the last few turns of Posthuman Saga tend to be reasonably repetitive. And this honestly is, is one of my biggest problems with Posthuman Saga. There are so many duplicate cards. Every deck is loaded through with duplicate cards. You're going to run across the same melee weapons, the same ranged weapons, the same enemies, the same event cards. You, you pull through the event deck a number of times and events happen. And, you know, it's the standard adventure game weirdness. It's like, you, you get some stuff, or you, take some wounds. Oh, you're knocked out now. Too bad. Whatever. Fine. When I'm playing an adventure game, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with this. But in our first play, 
we encountered duplicates across several different decks the first time we played. That's not cool. Not cool. Speaking of things that aren't the same are the skill decks for every every different character. And I think that they did a great job of making every character unique. And, and even though there's very limited things that you can do in the game, like, you know, you like move and combat and fight and stuff, it's still, they found ways to make the, the characters different. Yeah, you have experience points and you buy skills, and that part was really cool. Well, yeah, well, that's in the other point. It's a, you sort of just play, you you pay, you spend experience points, and that's cool. But in other adventure games, they make you either a spend an action to do that, or b you have to wait till a certain part of the game, like you know when it's half over or till the end of a session. Right? This they just tack it on to the end of every turn. If you have enough XPs, just spend them, and it's done. So it's you know it doesn't slow down the game. It makes it nice and easy, and lets you you know make the character the way you want it to. That's true. It allows you to have followers. I just made this quick note. I thought that I always love, I always love, you know, you create your own little posse, your own little group as, you know, and it feeds into the theme, right? You're, you're, you know, collecting this little group that's going out and fighting these combats. I always love it when you can get followers. The followers admittedly were the coolest bits and they also made the story encounters more fun. Because in a lot of the story encounters, it asks you, do you have a charismatic follower? Or the events as well. Right. Do you have a resourceful follower? If so, the following good or bad things happen. And that part was one of the few times when I felt that the narrative of the game was really being customized to me as a player. It's like, oh, I found this rock star. He joined me a few turns ago. That makes this event different. And that, that part really gave me a sense of narrative ownership over the game, even though it was largely illusory. But those elements, unfortunately, were too few and far between. And then there's combat. Then so, there's combat. Well, I have the good parts about combat first. So anyway, I love the the skill the skill deck and sorry, I shouldn't say I love the skill deck. I love how the skill deck depletes as the game goes on and if you don't rest, you have less cards to choose from like you're getting fatigued, you're getting tired, you're you know going through all these combats and and you're just trying to get through and not die. So I thought that was cool. I really like how the enemy abilities were all different and with the very limited the combat's relatively quick and easy. And with those very few steps, they managed to still make the enemies different and unique and do cool things. And the fact that when you got too close to mutants or they hit you too hard, you started to receive mutations and stuff. I thought that was interesting. I thought the combat was just about the perfect level of detail and grit, right? Again, this is not, this isn't Mage Knight. It's not trying to be, this isn't too many bones. It's not trying to be. It's a simple question of, okay, slot out your equipment, decide if you're going to spend some ammo, engage in ranged combat, maybe a couple dice rolls, you're done. And so it wasn't particularly cumbersome. It didn't contribute to the downtime problems, although there was a fair amount of downtime. And you're right, the variability in terms of what different enemies would do was pretty cool. Again, shame about the repeats, though. Yes. Now, this part, will the bad part of the combat is... It's probably not solely to me, but it's a lot is, is something I didn't like. I, uh, I love rolling dice, especially in combat. People love rolling dice. I don't think it's just me. And the fact that only the enemies get to roll the dice and only we get to play cards, didn't like that. I think they should have flipped that around. I know most traditional games means that, you know, it's the other way around. It's like you're just drawing cards for the enemies and, and you get to roll dice. But it was one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm playing some cards, and it's like, okay, now the enemy gets to roll these dice, and it's like, but I want to roll the dice. <laughs> I, I can sympathize with that. I don't have that same preference, but I hear where you're coming from. Okay, now now let's do the Mike Walker thing where it's like, he should have. Just imagine this, though. Like, no, it's say, fine. Now say if the... You're a critic, Walker. Now, be critical. Now say if the enemies had the de- the skill deck instead, right? That sounds like a setup nightmare. You're just talking about one shared deck across all the enemies, or... No, well, shared deck for each player. 
This is your enemy okay. skill deck. Like just like the I'm going towards the Gloomhaven template where there's an enemy deck. I see. So as you're doing these story missions and or other things, you get to feed cards into your enemy deck. So, oh, I see. Right. So it's like so it'd change it up. I thought I think that would be that would be a cool idea. But anyway, I I, I wish that the players got to roll dice in combat. <laughs> Reasonable. And I have covered all of my good points, sir. Let's go into the bad points. I felt there was very little choice in this game. Just because, like I said at the beginning, you were told exactly what tiles you needed to put out. You were told exactly what you needed to do. There's very little, like, adventuring. There's, like, there's only one sort of path to victory. There is, like you said, the shared, you know, make certain combinations of these chits. But really throughout the game... It's sort of what you can do on the side because there's there's many things that let you put out tiles and you can put the tokens wherever you want. So it's just a matter of turn order or and or getting those tokens. I hear what you're saying and I felt that way definitely in the latter half of the game. But in the first half of the game where you're debating about trying to snatch up those first few tiles or trying to prepare for the next round of combat or trying to scavenge for better gear because the gear you have stinks. And all the time you see your opponent grabbing all these tiles and you look at these victory conditions and these first to complete objectives staring you in the face and wanting to get those points. There I felt that there was significant trade-off and there I felt that the action system really dovetailed neatly with all the other elements. And then I thought that the game was really singing. Just once your map is set up, once you've got a good set of tiles going and you're actually then going and completing the missions, that's where I felt the grind set in. That's where I felt, yes, I didn't really feel like I had a whole lot of agency. I would either make a heuristic decision, can I win the next fight? Yes, no. If I can't, I rest. If I can, I go and I fight. And there I, I, I then I felt like I was being led along a path and didn't really have a whole lot of options. It seemed very much like a solo game, Mark. When we were playing, there was not much we could do to hinder each other other than the fact the turn order and taking uh, cards you know, that the other person needed, but then there was actions that you could take that you could totally just refresh all of the tiles and more than likely, I'd say 80% of the time, what you needed would come up anyway. Again, I don't, I don't know about that, but everything relating to the tile system, I thought was very good and I enjoyed and I thought, but then again, I like tile laying games. Other than the tile system, other than competing for the tiles and getting to lay out the tiles sooner and thereby complete your objective sooner, you're right. There is no real interaction. Literally, if you anybody who wants to look at the board, you are not even playing on the same board. Everyone has their own quadrant of the board. Now, this is largely because, I think, other adventure games have done player interaction very badly. Where it's existed, it's usually been perfunctory and incredibly unsatisfying. Just the last one we reviewed, for example, being Star Wars Outer Rim. It's like, yeah, you can go attack the other player, but it's pretty clunky, it's going to grind the game to a halt, and it's usually not your interest, and you should probably just go off and do other things anyway. Or Mage Knight, oh my goodness. Or, exactly, nobody nobody that I know of that really likes Mage Knight. Usually the conversation about Mage Knight, which again, I think is probably my favorite adventure game of... of even remotely within striking distance of these kinds of things. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, Mage Knight is great. How are we going to play? Oh, we're going to play co-op, right? <laughs> or yeah. or maybe PvP uh, with no player versus player combat where we're just going off and doing our thing. So I respect the fact that they at least didn't try to shoehorn in some stupid kind of, well, you're in, you're in the same space, roll a die and whack somebody up the head. But it does really emphasize the fact that you are playing multiplayer solitaire much of the time. It's too long. Yes. The Between the... I don't want to say huge setup, but it's a fairly extensive setup and therefore an extensive teardown and the length 16 turns. I, th I think it's a very long game. Yeah, two player, it's about two hours. Uh, more players makes it longer. 
I don't think, as I say, especially given the fact that the second half of the game was not as much to my taste, I think that's longer than it wants to be. And then they sort of have a miss your turn mechanic where if you get KO'd, you pretty well miss your turn. You have to take a camp action and you have to rest. And so you're sort of out for a turn. Yeah, and a lot of it is when you get KO'd, again, when you're talking about adventure games like this, it's hard to get too upset about the influence of luck, but often it's just a question of pulling the wrong kind of enemy for your build, and then sometimes, if the dice roll goes really badly, you're going to suffer a huge quantity of hurt. This, I just want to talk about this, because it sort of feeds into the same sort of thing. There is almost a limit to how many victory points you can get. So I think the end victory points are very similar. And the fact when you get KO'd, you lose a victory point. But what sort of this feeds into is if you fight an enemy and lose, it's going to put you a step back because you have to do that again. It's huge, yeah. And it, and it could be at a fairly crucial time because if it's about you're about to finish a part of your mission, and if you do it before anybody else, you get some bonus points. So those few points are fairly essential. It can easily be a four-point swing in a game where a winning score can be somewhere, somewhere south of 20. That's right. And the fact that everyone's fairly at the same level. So if you failed that turn, that means the next person is probably doing theirs that turn as well. And therefore they more likely may succeed and therefore they will get the points. And yeah, we we saw it happen several times. We did. And I thought that that was sort of, sort of wishy-washy for me. Next, next I have the landmark tokens here. I just thought, you know, there was kind of odd and yet another part of the game that just really didn't need to be there. I don't know what, what he, what they were going for there it was just sort of yet more narrative and yet another deck that you had to look through and read cards that made no sense. A little bit of flavor and a little bit of impetus to go put tiles in a certain direction. So, and then there was the scavenger site tokens. These are all minor things, right? They, they, they seemed interesting. There was like the shopping mall, the, the you know, the tire, you know, they all had sort of junkyard like shopping mall, but they had no bearing on the game whatsoever. Like, it's, you know what I mean? The, it's, it's, it's the, a key part of the tile laying. Oh, no, I don't mean the actual t- the thing themselves. I'm just oh. mean what they were called. Like oh, they could have just had letters. Or, they could have just had letters of four different colors. Or, yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah, and I, I just you know I thought that was sort of like a lost because like when you forged on a certain type of tile, you got certain type of things. And they could have just put and you get a food if it's on a shopping thing, or you get something else if it's that's if true. This, You're this right. Stuff, you know they could have done anything just to you know to tie that part of the theme into the game. So to sum up. The adventure game genre for me is best done as a sort of series of tactical combat encounters. That, that, that to me is where I've, I've come down in terms of where, like, I'm not interested in different versions of talisman dressed up in various shades. I would rather play something like Assault on Doomrock, something like Too Many Bones, or even, dare I say, something kind of like Vengeance, although that's a bit of a stretch. Vengeance, in terms of overall act structure, is very similar in that you do these things to prepare for the next fight, and then you do a fight, and that's the structure of the game. Very much in the same way that you that Doomrock and Too Many Bones unfurl. The only one that really works, I think, in a modern design context is Mage Knight, and Mage Knight is a very odd beast. The only other one that I'd like to shout out that I think really works is Shadow of Malice by Jim Felly, but Shadow of Malice is such an iconoclastic design that it really helps to sell the world and is a master of sort of indirect storytelling without loads and loads of flavor text. Very, very unique offerings. There's a host of also rands that we've either reviewed or played in the past that just don't do anything for me. And so, I give full credit that post-human saga injects into this standard sort of tired genre a really interesting tiling element that I thoroughly enjoyed. That part I thought was really cool, and I wish it had more to do with the game. If this could be redesigned, 
as a tiling game, beef up that element, strip away all the adventure stuff, <laughs> get rid of the combat, I think I'd enjoy Post-Human Saga a lot more. I, I, I wish that the promise of the theme had delivered. I wish that those little bits of, of narrative conceit that give you a sense of ownership of what's happening, that little bit of uniqueness, more instances of, oh, this story is going to proceed differently because you have this scout following you around that you rescued a few turns ago. Stuff like that was great, and unfortunately, it was mostly drowned out by an overlong, somewhat repetitive, small-feeling universe where there was lots of flavor text, but it didn't really sell me on the world. And that's where I ended up in Post-Human Saga. Like I said, yeah, it would be a great solo experience, or if it was a two-player thing where one player played the mutants and the other player played the adventurer and there was some sort of back and forth there, that would be interesting, but I just think there was, it's too long for too little choices, too few paths to victory. Well, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. If you liked it, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.